Welcome to the 37 Practices of a Bodhisattva. We are on Bodhisattva Practice 25. The practice of all the Bodhisattvas is to give out of generosity with no hopes of karmic recompense or expectation of reward. For if those who seek awakening must give even their own bodies, what need is there to mention mere outer objects and possessions? Let's call this Bodhisattva Practice 25, Spill the Drink and Be Happy. Many years ago, I took my children to McDonald's for them to enjoy the playground. We finished our food and the playground became rather crowded. A family of four looked for a place to sit and my table was the only place available. Would you like to sit here? I can move over there to the table of two. You are so kind, the mother said. Instantly, I removed the trash. Then, as I grabbed my drink and walked toward the other table, my drink flew out of my hands and landed on the floor. I made a huge mess. My first thought was not the following. If I had not moved, my drink would not have made a mess. <laughs> Instead, I accepted the reaction, had an employee clean up the drink, and continued to watch the children play. Too many times we expect a reward for doing the right action or right thing for others. What is in it for me is not the mentality I wish to teach my children. In fact, if I lose my drink because of a kind deed, it is worth it. Don't expect anything in return and be prepared for negative actions upon oneself once the kind deed happens. There is no guarantee that a kind deed will result in anything for you. So, don't expect anything. That's supposed to make you feel positive. I don't know if it does, but it makes me feel positive. Let's move to the next Bodhisattva practice, Bodhisattva practice number 26. The practice of all the Bodhisattvas is to observe ethical restraint without the slightest intention of continuing in samsaric existence. For lacking discipline, one will never secure even one's own well-being, and so any thought of bringing benefit to others would be absurd. All right, ethical restraint. My uh, Bodhisattva Practice 26 name for this is Forget the Roles, which doesn't sound like discipline, but give me a second. Ethical conduct is a slippery slope informed by cultural traditions. A man making love to another man may look negative in many cultures, while gay marriage or loving a person of the same sex has always been acceptable in my thoughts. During church camp, I remember a youth counselor quoting a verse by the Apostle Paul from 1 Corinthians 6, and I'll read this. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sacrificed, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. 
Repeatedly, I recall the counselor or coach focusing not on idolatry, thievery, or alcoholism, but on homosexuality. This was when I was uh, 15 years old. Do we see the irony here? A heterosexual youth is learning to regard homosexuality as a sin when he or she should be learning more about alcoholism and stealing something teenagers sometimes do. Right then, I knew the Bible was flawed and written by human beings. Gladly, the conservative reform and reconstructionist movements in Judaism mostly accept sexual orientation in the community. Gladly, the latest Pope has made positive statements not only toward sexual orientation, but also atheism. He basically stated, who am I to judge? And many churches are finally accepting all people into their institution. I thank the United Church of Christ Congregationalist Movement for taking the lead. As human beings, we have to consider what is ethical conduct and what is not written in any text. Instead, we know in our minds when we are not patient, lack compassion, or exhibit signs of jealousy toward other human beings. If one is straight, gay, or bisexual, what is sexual misconduct? Is it hurting another person? Is it thinking about sex the entire day instead of having some kind of mental balance? Probably. Is making love any, ever, in every position okay as long as it does not consume the rest of daily existence? Does one need to be humiliated during sex to overcome anxiety? Some people do. Is it unethical? For me, I don't know. For others, maybe not. It is difficult to judge what ethical conduct is and every thought must be examined instead of establishing a slew of rules. So let's forget the commandments and use rational, logical thinking to what attachment and aversion really is, I think. Jesus was kind to the prostitute. He did not think about her from a professional standpoint. He saw her heart. The Buddha asks us to examine the mind. Are we obsessing about an issue? If so, then our mind needs to practice meditation and overcome any obsession, even if it is an obsession to ice cream or an addiction to cigarettes. Or, in my view, cheesecake. Buddhism is not a list of rules to follow, unless, of course, you are a monk or nun. I would argue that Christianity is also beyond rules, but many Christians focus more on the rules and less on the compassion taught by Jesus. How can we condemn or help another person if we are thinking all the time about the rules? Should we, shouldn't we first investigate the mind and see its operations within ourselves? This post is not about sexual misconduct. This post is about searching for wisdom. Every event in our lives exists as new wisdom, unless we engage reality through bland social conditioning. Then we are trapped in samsara's net. Open the mind. Where is it leading you? Is it healthy? Is it transformative? Stop looking at others' faults, for they are a mere reflection of our face in the mirror. Bodhisattva practice number 27. The practice of all the bodhisattvas is to cultivate patience, free from any trace of animosity towards anyone at all. 
since any potential source of harm is like a priceless treasure to the bodhisattva who is eager to enjoy a wealth of virtue. Patience, virtue. We're going through the six perfections here. Generosity, patience, um, discipline, wisdom, etc. Let's call this Bodhisattva Practice 27, Love Trunkpa's Patience. Trunkpa, Chagya, Chagyam Trunkpa, a Karba Kaju uh, master. Lately, I've been listening to podcasts from Trunkpa students. In one podcast, the speaker describes Trunkpa being able to sit in a chair for hours. His concentration and focus while in the chair provide us an example of patience. Trunkpa's son speaks about his father in a similar form. The son remembers Trunkpa trying to persuade his son to eat Chinese food, not with a fork, but with chopsticks. His son refused. Trunkpa's anger arises as he bends a spoon or fork in the process. The son states that when Trunkpa was alive, that spoon or fork sat on Trunkpa's shrine as a reminder of Trunkpa's lack of patience. The world is reactive, yet if we sit for a few minutes or hours in a chair and allow the setting to enter our being without the concept of good or bad, we can accomplish anything. Let's place our feet on solid ground. Let's raise our chin to the world. We are kings and queens on thrones of patience. Patience is my weakness. I have an allergy to movement, noise, and lights. They cause panic attacks, actually. Sometimes I sit on the couch and breathe while chaos runs rampant around me. The kittens jump into my lap and then fly to their next destination. I simply watch the movie. Every chaotic movement outside of self is our opportunity to practice patience. As a teacher, students may not understand a concept or they understand the concept but cannot apply it to their assignments. Years ago, a student always confused the words where and were. Where becomes a verb in every sentence. I became so fed up with the student because I discussed the differences with him throughout the semester. Sometimes I think he placed where as a verb just to test my patience. So for his last paper, I circled in heavy black marker everywhere in his paper. Obviously, I lost my patience. I lost my ground. I no longer sat on my chair like a king or a queen. I don't grade like that anymore, obviously, and when students repeat mistakes, I mark one paragraph and leave it up to them to correct the rest of the errors. My advice is given, and then I sit in the space of patience. In fact, a grammar mistake no longer causes any anger or hostility to arise in me although I know many professors who cannot read a paper unless it is edited well. I sometimes make grammar mistakes on Facebook to test my colleagues' patience. I'm probably not exhibiting various good conduct, virtuous conduct. Everybody has strange tics that set them off uh, into a furious rage. These tics typically are mundane, such as cat hair on a shirt, for example, a student once walked up to me in the middle of my lecture and brushed the side of my hair. She could not listen because my hair was not combed properly, according to her. We laughed about it. She recognized her limits of impatience too. I am simply glad I have students like her who are not afraid to express themselves 
by combing a professor's hair in the middle of class. Would most professors scream, get back in your seat? I just laughed. We human beings take ourselves seriously in the West. Suicide rates among high school teenagers sadden me. They have a beautiful life if they can simply not listen to the hostility of their own minds. Back to Trumpa. He once spilled a beer on his shirt. He continued meditating in the chair. He could have been sleeping for all the people knew. After a while, he looked up and saw some people sitting on a couch. He smiled and said, accidents do happen. All right, let's move to Bodhisattva practice 28. The practice of all the Bodhisattvas is to strive with enthusiastic diligence, the source of all good qualities, when working for the sake of all who live, seeing that even Shravakas and Pratikabuddhas, who labor for themselves alone, exert themselves as if urgently trying to extinguish fire upon their heads. Let's call this Bodhisattva practice number 28, balance self to liberate others. In the Vajrayana tradition, we focus on three levels of practice, the Hinayana, not the same as Theravada, Mahayana and Vajrayana. The Hinayana path establishes the ground of being. Without a strong sense of identity, foundation, and strength, we cannot benefit sentient beings successfully. How many politicians want to save the world but cannot keep a healthy sense of self? The Mahayana path, once we have balanced ourselves, pushes us to diligently work for the benefit of all sentient beings, including the fly I dare not swat on my leg. According to Kimpo Kartha Rinpoche, if a fly dies or if any animal crosses our path, we should chant the mantra of compassion, Om Mani Padme Hum. We might, may not know if our chanting benefits the fly, but it is at least creates an interdependent link of aspiration bodhicitta between the animal realm and ourselves. Maybe in the next life, when we become better bodhisattvas, we can free the fly from its constant buzzing and searching for survival. The Vajrayana level is the meeting of the Hinayana and Mahayana path. The deity practice focuses on becoming the archetype of compassion in realizing the natural quality already existing within us, which we call Buddha nature. Vajrayana also integrates the Mahayana view of emptiness or spaciousness as we begin to see the radiant joy of all objects or beings from a non-dualistic perspective. With radiant joy, we continue to benefit all beings, including those angry birds causing us disturbances in our lives. I like to use the word radiant joy as exertion, uh, diligence, as the Bodhisattva practice mentions. I provide this background for the Bodhisattva practice 28 merely because the three yanas are not necessarily levels or steps toward enlightenment. They tend to be taught and presented in this form, however. In the Vajrayana tradition, we practice all simultaneously. I grow in many ways toward the Mahayana Bodhisattva level, while I still lag behind as a Hinayana solitary realizer in other areas of my life. Life is organic, and so is the process of realization and liberation from samsara. On different blogs I read, I hear people tell me they are on the Vajrayana path, 
but I always mention words like bodhicitta, the innate wish in us to free sentient beings. And they say, but I practice the higher teachings. <laughs> Anything I do will dissolve into, into emptiness, they say. Are we really that developed at mind training, at the highest teachings? I don't think so. Unless the world looks completely translucent for you, ethics, part of all three yanas, continue to play out as karmic ripening in our lives. It is okay to struggle with the self. It is okay to say parts of me are still on the Hinayana path. We wish all beings to achieve enlightenment, including ourselves, right? When we seem alone, though, and bask in the self-righteous ego, we may wish to recognize the limits of the Hinayana view and strive to help others. I find that helping others reduces the self-righteous ego. Finally, when we think we have reached the apex of liberation, there are other beings we must reach. Climbing down the mountain and helping others reach a similar state as us is the ultimate path of liberation. Bodhisattva Practice 29. The practice of all the bodhisattvas is to cultivate concentration, which utterly transcends the four formless absorptions in the knowledge that mental afflictions are overcome entirely through penetrating insights suffused with stable calm. Bodhisattva Practice 29, I call, is there time to reach nirvana? According to Rikpa Wiki, the four formless absorptions represent the higher patents on emptiness, infinite space, infinite consciousness, nothing whatsoever, and neither existence nor non-existence. So we're talking about mental states here. When I first arrived at this pith instruction, my initial reaction is I am still understanding disturbing emotions, even with insight, tranquil abiding and or meditative concentration. Does this busy life of making enough money to raise a family give us enough time to arrive at cultivating meditative concentration? I have been thinking of this question quite often. My biggest example is to watch a UPS driver run his or her busy route to deliver boxes we have ordered from Amazon and other places. The drivers work long hours until every box is delivered. They barely speak to the customers. They knock on the door and run to the truck. As they drive away, they look out the rearview mirror to see if somebody answers the door. They do not wait for conversation. These days, they put uh, packages on your door without even knocking. If workers do not have time to speak to each other, how can they find time to meditate? How will these disturbing emotions settle or disappear when we are, quote, always on the run? I have reached some cynical conclusions this past month. If nirvana is possible in this lifetime, how do we find the time to reach it? Am I wasting my time meditating when I can barely maintain my busy schedule? I have four children of varying ages, a teaching position taking at least 50 hours per week for my life, anxiety and panic attacks that lead me to sleep at least eight to 10 hours per day, per day to settle them, and of course, family responsibilities. When I ask my students to meditate, they always say something to this effect. I like the exercise of meditation, but I don't have time in my schedule to continue. Even the 17th Karmapa has stated his own busy schedule keeps him from practicing fully as he would like. If the Karmapa cannot maintain a hefty meditation schedule, how do we, the workers of this economy, have time to improve ourselves 
for the benefit of others. Is Nirvana a losing battle in this busy capitalistic realm? It may be. Are there solutions to this conundrum? I only have one. A friend recently wrote that Buddha should focus on practicing any curriculum related to Amitabha. Let me explain. Amitabha is a Buddha who promised his followers to provide a pure land, a place to practice after death. After practice, one then achieves the various four formless absorptions, becomes a full-fledged bodhisattva, and is prepared to help others in the various realms. This pure land reminds me somewhat of heaven from the Christian perspective. The difference may be that in heaven, one is purified by God or Jesus and lives in a pure heavenly state forever. The major difference in Buddhism is that Amitabha does not accomplish the work for the person. Still, the individual must practice, or I assume they will continue to fall into various mental states and repeat the cycle of birth, death, and rebirth time and time again. The Christian heaven actually sounds delightful. The work is done. It is finished, as Jesus states on the cross before he dies, for the suffering of all beings. However, I have an issue with this view of free pass into heaven or a pure land. Is it that easy? Is it all finished? If we arrive in heaven on a, or a pure land and see pure love radiating, don't we have more work to do? I want to work despite the suffering. Maybe pure radiant joy in the vast expanse of heaven or a pure realm is enough for some people. This life is an endless path. Even each moment is a path. If we have reached the goal, does the path end? Again, I wish to work. Working, though, creates suffering, and then I wish for a heaven and or a pure, pure realm. It's too complex after a while to make a clear direction, especially if we are tired as I am today. The great mystery is I don't really know the outcome after this life, so I practice my best, even if this current world is not constructed for practice. I will find some time in my busy life to break through the relative chaos. I will write when I can. I will meditate when I can. I will stop even for five minutes and push my way slowly toward enlightenment, a pure land, or heaven. That's all I can do in this overly tiring and endless desire realm. Meanwhile, I must stop writing. I have grading to do, children to pick up, and rest to tame the panic attacks. After that, I hope to have a few minutes or an hour to sit before my shrine and be silent, one day at a time, one breath at a time, no matter the future outcome, no matter if heaven or a pure land exists, I can at least arrive in a pure state for three to five minutes. Okay, thank you for listening. We'll continue with the Bodhisattva practices on the next podcast. <laughs>